The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. He was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit in the affairs 
and the tribal police on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. He's been in jail far too long. He used to be a household name because people around the country, around the world, took up his case. Bill Clinton was supposed to grant him clemency. And guess what? He didn't do it because he was a president who built his career, built his presidency on locking people up and throwing away the key. And Pelletier's life has been wasted because of that fateful decision. And we're here to say, not another day longer. It's 2009. Why is Leonard Peltier still in jail? And why the dozens of FBI agents and goons and police officers who killed people, who harassed people, who brutalized people, who fought back in the early 70s, why aren't they in jail where they belong? He's a grandfather. He was brutally attacked in prison earlier this year. He needs our support. He still believes in justice. If you read his book, his prison writings, he believes in struggle. And we need to help him uh, tonight, and especially over the course of the next couple months. He has a parole hearing on July 28th. Um, we need to write letters in support of him. People have um, copies of letters that you can sign. They're in the back. And we want to send, they're, uh, they're being waved around the back. All you have to do is sign, and we're going to send in hundreds of letters just from this weekend alone to make a case that he should be free. All he wants is to walk and feel the earth beneath his feet and be with his grandkids. And this is someone who has fought for people, and we're going to fight for him as well. Do what you can, spread the word, make his name a household name again. And you know, the, the, his defense committee thinks that we have a shot because President Obama was a civil rights attorney and knows about the legal system. And you know, we might have a shot, but we're gonna have to fight for it. So everyone sign a letter, spread the word, and keep your um, eyes open for what happens on July 28th. Thank you, Michelle. Our next speaker needs no introduction, Ahmed Shaki. Sorry about the elaborate pirouette. This is for my benefit, not for yours. I just have to have a look. Uh, I've been asked uh, by uh, comrades and friends on the Haymarket board, uh, Haymarket Books board, to say a few words, and I'll keep it very, very brief, um, to say a few words to raise funds uh, for Haymarket. And I got straight to the point, said it in deadpan, serious tone, uh, will now make the customary humor and uh, the pitch. Um, <laughs> But really, uh, consider it to be a great honor to be asked to do that on behalf of Haymarket Books. In 2001, um, a number of us discussed the starting of Haymarket. We discussed it, um, and it, it bore fruition. I remember in 2004, three of us taking a trip, uh, Anthony Arno, Julie Fain, and myself to um, Minneapolis uh, to try to find a distributor for our books. Uh, and you know, it's as in the rest of politics, a lot of hard work, a lot of stuff behind the <laughs> At this conference alone, Haymarket Books has released seven new titles. A classic of the movement's literature, a book by Harvey O'Connor, reprinted by the name Revolution in Seattle, which I recommend very, very highly. A new book by Dar Jamal, 
who was unable to make it this weekend because the weather called the will to resist, a diary from Bergen-Belsen by Amira Haas, a book of essays by the actor Wally Shawn, uh, two very, very important studies of Lenin, which I've been asked to make a particular plug for, in part because we've been publishing so much that people may not know uh, either of those titles. One is a book called War on War, which is about the Zimmerwald opposition to war. The other one is a two-volume study republished in one volume uh, by a guy called Neil Harding called Lenin's Political Thought, which is one of the most outstanding works uh, on Lenin's political thinking. We don't agree with every thing that he wrote. Needless to say, we don't agree, <laughs> cranky as we are. However, <laughs> It is an extremely good book, and of course, the long-awaited uh, and uh, much bought, uh, but we hope uh, will sell even more uh, books, uh, Sherry Wolf's book uh, on sexuality and uh, sold before the meeting, we'll do a count of how many sold after the meeting, <laughs> to keep you honest. Uh, and just to end up by saying that amongst the books that we are releasing this fall are three books by, um, you know, some people who you may have heard of. Amy Goodman, <laughs> Breaking the Sound Barrier, a collection of essays by one of the, uh, of the most recent period's best writers, Arundhati Roy. and a collection of essays uh, by a man who I had the opportunity for the first time to meet only a few months ago, but who's had an influence on all of us, a collection of essays by Noam Chomsky. Uh, <laughs> I said I'd be brief and I will sum up. I ask you to give generously, Haymarket, get some grant money, uh, but this kind of publishing work is extremely demanding costs a lot of money, and I also want to say that Haymarket is but one division of the Center, of Economic, uh, the Center for Economic Research and Social Changes work. Sirsk, what a name. <laughs> we were trying to hide its true meaning. <laughs> no, anyway. Um, it's only one of the projects of Sirsk, and I know that people have been generous in the past. We ask you to be generous again. We rely on this event and on the support of members, supporters, uh, and friends of Haymarket and Surst to maintain a lot more than the final product that you see. Uh, and I want to urge you, please, to visit uh, the book room again. You have no choice on the way out of here. Now uh, <laughs> Make sure these are on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Comrades, welcome to Socialism 2009.
name is Bazaar, and I'm a comrade here in the Chicago area. Before we get started tonight, I want to share a personal experience of mine, and I think it really outlines the events of the last year, from whence we had the last socialism conference. A year ago this time, I visited Iran for the first time in 26 years. It was an eye-opening experience for me. When I was there, I had lots of questions for people, but I found that people had lots of questions for me. The world was captivated with the phenomenon of the presidential election here in the United States. And everywhere I went in Iran, everyone and everybody wanted to know, who is this Obama? Because the world wanted to know, who is this Obama? Now I find myself here at Socialism 2009, a year later, in the United States, and from afar, we are all witnessing what is happening halfway around the world as the Iranian people take to the streets, demanding freedom. And I find myself in a similar situation. What's happening in Iran? The point is, what a difference a year makes. In my lifetime, I never expected to see an African-American man elected president of the United States in a country founded upon slavery. We witnessed this past year a heroic struggle by workers right here in Chicago who occupied their workplace and won and sent the message to workers everywhere that struggle can succeed. But we've also witnessed the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, sweeping the world and causing devastation upon the lives of working people everywhere. And just this past December, we witnessed Israel's horrible assault, horrendous bloodshed, and its attack upon the Palestinian people living in Gaza. But what's important to note is that for the first time, as a result, the solidarity of people here in the United States with the plight of the Palestinian people has made a dramatic shift occur. What a difference a year. Never has this conference been so timely. We are certainly witnessing the dawn of a new era unfolding before our And so people know already at this conference, we have matched the attendance from last year. And we still have one more to go. As people have seen throughout the conference, engaged in discussion and debate, we should be proud. We have a rich history of struggle on our side. This conference, the goal is to contribute to our understanding of this history so we know how far we've come. The flip side is that we need to have clarity in terms of where we are going. And to bridge that gap, we need to be honest with where we are today. It is in the, only in this way that the task before us becomes clear. You are part of that struggle because we are building a new left for this new era. Tonight we have a panel of distinguished guests. <laughs> you all know them by name, I'm sorry. 
I'm going to introduce them in turn. Our first speaker this evening is Joel Geyer. He's the, he is the associate editor of the International Socialist Review. And like myself, I'm sure everyone here, in order to get your head around what the hell is going on with this economy, grab Joel Geyer's articles every time they appear in the ISR to gain that understanding. A valuable resource, a valuable comrade. Please welcome Joel Geyer. Thank you, Bezad. Uh, does someone have a watch? You want a watch? Okay, thank you. Uh, okay. Um, a year ago, we would not be talking about a new era. Um, but before we can start talking about a new era and a new left for a new era, let's just talk uh, for a few minutes about the old era. Okay? Really, in a word, it was 30 years of reaction, of neoliberalism, of the triumph of the free market, of the redistribution of wealth to capital. The economy more than doubled and wages went down as the rich took everything and this became the most unequal society imaginable in class terms. And the... Okay. Uh, and the politics of the period were to back up that economic redistribution, to wipe out the gains of the 60s, to wipe out the movements of the 60s, the black movement, the women's movement, the gay movement, and so on. It's a period in which we were told, in which the United States became the only superpower we were told that was the end of history, the start of peace. It was the extension of the empire being busted and the radical left, which depends upon the class struggle for its growth and influence and so on, was in retreat, demoralized, and disintegrating. That's what the old era was. 30 years of reaction, it is time to drive a stake through its heart. Okay, it's intimidating me, sorry. Uh, what started this new era is, as Bezad said, the economic crisis, the failure of the free market, not to us, the radical, but its failure to the whole world economically, not just ideologically. It has opened up a long-term systemic crisis of international capitalism that will not end for years until the banks are recapitalized, industry is restructured, not just GM and Chrysler, but industry in this country and internationally, world trade is reorganized. And, pro and uh, capitalist profitability is restored. Until then, for years, we are going to be in a long-term crisis with all the ups and downs of that crisis. Now, it has created an enormous ideological opening 
about the free market and its workings and its impact on people's lives. And now, and we have been arguing that for quite some time, now we have liberalism in power and we are also have to start to argue the questions not just of what's wrong with Keynesianism theoretically, but in practice, how it doesn't solve the crisis, how it doesn't overcome it, how eventually what it is in front of us is bail out the bankers and forget about our misery. Now, it is that, this economic crisis, that is radicalizing a new generation. They're not being radicalized by our propaganda. They're being radicalized by the conditions of life, by foreclosures, by job losses, by cuts in social services, by the loss of their savings. That is what is radicalizing a whole generation. An economic crisis and economic instability means heightened class struggle, whether it is on the part of the bosses to, draw, to try and drive down wages and raise exploitation to get out of this crisis, or on the part of workers who will, of necessity, at some point have to fight back against it. Economic instability also means political instability and sharp swings in consciousness from right to left and back again. The one thing that we can say about this new period is you have to expect the unexpected. And it has started to come fast and clear, as Bezad was starting to lay out. There's the Rasmussen poll, in which it turns out a bare majority of people in this country think that capitalism is better than socialism. Who would have said that a year ago? <laughs> or that when it comes to class, they're not the upper middle class, that's the working class in these polls. Okay? It has also led to things like the occupation of Republic windows. We wouldn't have been talking about factory occupations a year ago. To the fact that gay equality has been put on the agenda, none of us would have predicted the enormous swing to gay marriage. We all would have thought that that would have been the most unpopular thing. It now is going from victory to victory. But it has also meant the collapse of European social democracy, the rise of a fascist right that is racist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and so on. And it has also started to see the reemergence of the far left, at least electorally, in Portugal, in Greece, in France, and in Ireland. But most magnificently, it is the mass upheaval from below going on in Iran today. Which is a classic pre-revolutionary situation in which the ruling class can no longer rule in the old way and is split wide open and it has given an opening for the masses of people who no longer want to be ruled in the old way to take to the streets and to fight back. Partially, I don't, you know, we are told this is about an election, but we also know something, that there's an economic crisis in Iran, that there's 23 or more percent inflation, that there's huge unemployment, that the standard of living has gone down. I don't know whether there'd be these sorts of demonstrations a year ago when oil was over $100 a barrel. What is going on in Iran, what went on in Republic windows, what is go what going on is all tied up to this new period of economic crisis and instability. We also have to understand that 
we, our fate is tied up to what's occurring in Iran. If it is victorious, it will spread through the Middle East and other places elsewhere. If it is defeated, it will be a temporary setback. People will be demoralized, not just in Iran. They will think it's not as possible to change things. So our fate, the fate of uh, working class people throughout the world is tied up with it. But I think one of the things that we have to understand is we are entering a period in which some of the weak links are going to snap, in which there will be other pre-revolutionary situations in the next five years. In the last crisis, it led to the overthrows of government in 97 and 2000, to the overthrows of government in Indonesia and Argentina. This is a much more severe crisis. There will be more revolutionary eruptions throughout the world in the coming years. Now, a new left is being born because the old left failed. That's what every new, left, every new left starts because the preceding left failed before it. Um, it is built through radicalization, through this economic crisis, through the ideological crisis that has been produced by it, but to be in every one of them or as many of them as we possibly can because that is how a new left is going to be built in this new era. Who's It is how people are going to learn, the cadres are going to be developed, uh, experience is going to be learned. That is what is necessary to rebuild a new left in this country, uh, in this country and internationally. We are, we are in these struggles because we support them, because for, we're what they are fighting for. Those are the things that we believe in. Those are a part of what our socialism is, but we also understand that it's out of these struggles that a new left and a revolutionary movement can be built. I just want to say something about the ISO in that regard, because I believe it is key to the development of this new left in this period. Um, the whole history of the ISO has been in the period of reaction. We have never really been, had the experience of a period of mass radicalization and the possibility of it. So it means that our conclusions are going to be somewhat tentative. We're going to have to feel them out. We're going to have to understand this period as it opens up uh, and so on. But I think that there's something else that's involved. We, what we have learned in the last period, we're not about to throw overboard. We are capable of playing the role that we have because of what we did in the last period of reaction. When the rest of the left was falling apart, we grew, both in numbers and in our specific weight inside the left. The rest of the left became aged, demoralized, low expectations, we develop a generation of young, enthusiastic fighters. Large parts of the left adapted politically to the period of reaction. They wouldn't be open socialists. 
They, when we came for the, out for the resistance in Iraq, we were denounced. We took lots of unpopular positions in order to defend revolutionary Marxist politics. All sorts of people who failed at party building denounced us as being kooks because we wanted to build a revolutionary party. Leninism became sort of a loony idea for parts of the left. But it wasn't just that we maintained revolutionary politics, we developed them. We developed theoretically. We adapted theory, revolutionary Marxist ideas to the development going on around us. Through socialist worker, through socialist worker online, through the ISR, through Haymarket, we developed theory. And in developing theory, we developed a cadre. Of course, you cannot have a cadre without theory. We developed a cadre of people who are dedicated, sincere, uh, enthusiastic with totally new uh, tasks. The day of the small propaganda group is coming to an end. Not today, not tomorrow, but in this period. It isn't because we decided on that, it's because life and history decided on that, that what revolutionary and radical groups have to do is to be able to present an alternative that is realistic to this crisis. We have to be able, we will be judged not just on how good our politics are, how good our arguments are, and they have to be good, but how good we put them into practice, into action. Theory has to be able to rise to the level of practice. We have to be able to create a stronger, more organized, more united left organized around working class, socialist politics and alternative. That isn't a, just a question of making some uh, arrangements or deals with other organizations, although that may be involved as well. It is a broader conception of creating a new left organized, in, uh, organized around working class politics and alternatives and struggles in this period. It me a minute or two. Uh, it means political struggle to raise consciousness, not to accommodate or adapt to existing consciousness. It means to build a cadre capable of leading in struggle to be open to every level of struggle, to be open sympathetically to all of the new people who are entering into struggle with all of their ideas, but to be also proud of the ideas and politics and perspectives that we have to bring to the struggle, which are key to winning struggles as well as doing something else, building a revolutionary socialist organization. Because we are not just about building a new left, we are about organizing a working class socialist uh, movement for the self-emancipation of the working class, for building a revolutionary socialist party out of this period that can put on the agenda the question of workers' power.
Our next speaker is on the editorial board of the International Socialist Review. And her new book couldn't be more timely. The author of Sexuality and Socialism, let's give it up for Sherry Wolf. not to speak about sex tonight. <laughs> At least not during the formal part of this program. You'll buy me a drink afterwards. Okay, liberals were in power. I, mean, I was born in the mid-60s, so it's, I didn't live through it. Um, and even Joel, uh, comrade Methuselah, um, is not old enough to have lived through a period of liberalism in power when the economy had totally collapsed. You would actually have to be well into your 80s um, in order to, uh, in order to have, have lived through that, and Joel is, is much too young a man for that. Um, and this means all sorts of new things are going to happen, and all sorts of new challenges and, and, and happenings will, will come upon us. A few weeks back, I, um, I got a call from a, a reporter at Business Week. I don't want to surprise you, but I, I've actually never gotten a call from a reporter at Business Week. And this reporter, of all things, wanted to talk to me, this is a Business Week reporter, about socialism. Um, which was uh, pretty fascinating, and actually uh, she wrote a pretty damn good article about why Obama is not a socialist, and at least according to socialists. I had, I had explained, I, I stole this one from socialistworker.org, um, that, that we had not seen Conrad Obama at the meetings. <laughs> but clearly she had read the, uh, the Newsweek cover story about we are all socialists now, and of course it's seen the, the Rasmussen poll, which to be honest, I find the most shocking thing about the Rasmussen poll is that anybody asked the question at all. Since when in this country do people call you up and say, hey, would you like to scrap the system? <laughs> um, it took me a while to absorb the actual numbers, but, but the question itself had me stumped. Um, but I... I uh, I think that what all of this is an expression of, when you have the major business papers, the mainstream press, um, a not so uh, progressive poll operation, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, something's afoot here, people are a little disturbed, I think what we can, can say for sure is that the system has been utterly discredited in the eyes of tens of millions of people in this country. The free market has been exposed for the shell game controlled by the rich and the powerful that it is and it always has been. And it's meant you know, uh, uh, certain fundamental shifts ideologically. I, only a year ago, I would, uh, big government was still a slur. It was like an epithet. No, big government, that's just waste and whatever. And now people want lots of big government because that's the only colossal power that exists out there that might be able to interfere between us and the abyss that many of us are, are facing. I think the scale of the crisis and the, and the rapidity with which it's gone into collapse has really become a game changer for, uh, for all of us. And, and I think it really gives uh, a sort of new meaning to that um, wonderfully poetic phrase of Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, that all that is solid melts into air, all that was holy is profaned. Every concept that people had been told our whole lives were fixed and permanent natural uh, features of our lives are now thrown into question. And for tens of millions of people in this country, including many of the people here at this conference, um, we have plan Bs. Everybody's got a plan B now, don't you? Whose couch you're gonna sleep on, which basement you're going to live in if you lose your job. And if you happen to be one of the unfortunate many 
who is living your plan B, then you're probably conjuring up a plan C. And, uh, and that, is, that is what is happening. We are all down with the mobile and that American dream that we've been writing about for some time having been a mythology and a nightmare for so many. And the next one, uh, the book right next to it is called Disposable Domestics. And that is how we feel. That is how we are made to feel and that is what has happened in our lives. Um, and yet all of this exists alongside this, this jobs desert, as the Economic Policy Institute puts it, exists alongside enormous hope, enormous hope in the Obama administration and what it seems to represent to millions and millions of people in this country. Now, now we socialists, we are pro-hope. We are, it could even be said, hope mongers. <laughs> um, not in the sort of always look on the bright side of life type of hope. We're not Pollyannas, we're not silly people who think the glass is always half full. Really, the glass is often half empty. Um, but it's that we are sort of, uh, we understand that we have to be sort of political MacGyvers. Remember that show MacGyver, the guy who, like a chewing gum and, and a hairpin, like Jerry Rick, a car. Um, we, we look for the openings and the possibilities. That's what socialists are. And so when we read about a southern workplace like Smithfield plant saying, if we can have a black man in the White House, then we can have a union in the Hog House, then we know that hope is an expression of those hopes, and he also in some distorted ways gives expression to some of those hopes. But at the same time, let's be blunt, Obama happens to run the wealthiest and most powerful empire in the history of the world. So his job description actually is to run the empire in the interests of the people uh, who run, who own and control industry in the interests of the ruling class. But the context, the context in which Obama has come to office is something that is entirely new and also is a game changer. Because he is presiding over, obviously, what is the worst depression since the Great Depression. I don't know when we can stop calling it a recession and start calling it depression. I just did it, so <laughs> you have license from me, but I'm not an economist. Um, and uh, and, and, and the, the, the fact that this context is, is so dramatically different from what has existed before, means that I think we have to take issue a little bit with some people who would like to just sort of see the betrayals that have begun to roll out and the sort of no banker left behind sort of policies that he is pursuing and the expansion of the war and the expansion of the prison industrial complex and on and on. I think that those who would like to uh, portray these betrayals as simply Clinton version 2.0 I think we need to be a little bit cautious about that because it almost seems to write a eulogy on the administration somewhere around 150 days into it. And I think we have to be a little bit more cautious. And, and I, I find it extremely useful right now reading about the 1930s, reading about the last time uh, someone who really gave the Democratic Party the liberal um, sort of name and, and uh, veneer that it has carried ever since came into office. And, and we, we often are, we're, you know, it's like the 60s. The 60s was, you know, rebellion. So we think every day there were millions of people in the streets. And so they say, in the 1930s, we're told that was also a sort of working class rebellion. And so we think that from the moment, um, you know, the 30s started, two years later until 1935, when we have Social Security and the Works Progress Administration and all the rest of that. And when it intervened in in, in the period before that, 
with struggle, organized social forces that hit the scene. It is not the liberals in power who deliver the goods. It's the struggle that forces their hands. And They talk a lot about Roosevelt and Kennedy and, and Johnson in this period. What doesn't get talked about is the fact that it was under Nixon that we saw the end of the death penalty. It was under Nixon that we saw women get the uh, right to control their own, bodies, uh, their own bodies through abortion. It was under Nixon we even got Earth Day. And Nixon even rattled on about black power, though I suspect he wasn't actually talking about what the Black Panthers were talking about. <laughs> and that is because he, he is in power at a time when there is struggle, when there are forces on the ground, and people are in motion, and people are pushing things. And we have to ask ourselves right now, we don't yet see those kinds of forces pushing the president. What we do see, the forces that have weighed in quite heavily and quite decisively, are the ruling class. And you take a look at the Employee uh, Free Choice Act, which was promised to labor that this reform, small reform in many ways, that would make it simpler, just a little bit simpler, to get a union. And there is no fight on the ground on a national level to fight for EFCA, despite the fact that $300 million plus went from the union coffers into the Democratic Party coffers in order to get this man elected. There needs to be a fight in order to get what we want. Same with healthcare and on and on. But we do see a few glimpses of what it looks like where there is pressure and where there is a grassroots mobilization to begin to fight. And they're not even vast. I don't think we can look at the LGBT struggles that, uh, that really erupted out of nowhere. I wish I could say, oh, I planned the book to come out now. I had no friggin' clue. Uh, I, I'm just not that good. Nobody, nobody is. Nobody could have uh, been able to tell that there was going to be the largest uh, national explosion of grassroots activists in really decades. Because I think we are looking at, it's, it, we're a week shy of the 40th anniversary of Stonewall. And to be honest, I think that um, this is really the most dramatic um, upheaval since the, 40, uh, since the Stonewall Rebellion of 40 years ago. And I know that there was, in the interim, 20 years ago, there was a dramatic um, upheaval around the AIDS crisis in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. But if you look at the content of it and the fact that uh, so much of it actually was quite hostile to straight people, quite hostile to the working class, quite hostile to the kinds of solidarity that just seems so automatic and, and obvious to so many of the young uh, multiracial activists who have uh, taken the reins on this fight, I think we see that the, the content of this has the potential to be so much more dramatically different and go so much further, as well as it being an expression of an enormous shift in consciousness in this country. And it's gotten me to thinking about how you, you, you actually have to, I'm, I'm sorry, I totally lost my, my train of thought. It's gotten me to thinking about how the, the, the struggles in this country that may well wind up take on, taking on the bosses in the, in the coming period may not initially uh, by workers start at the point of production and take. We need to understand the contradictory moment that we're in right now because some people are too quick to just simply toss out and pretend as though nobody has any hopes or expectations in Obama anymore. And I think we have to understand the dual character of what's happening. And I want to, I think no better example exists than what happened just a couple of weeks ago. On June 1, this is a statement that Barack Obama signed. It's the first time the President of the United States has ever signed his name to such a statement. And I think it's worth reading the first paragraph of it. 
Forty years ago, patrons and supporters of the Stonewall Inn in New York City resisted police harassment that had become all too common for members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. I guarantee you no president has ever uttered the word transgender. <laughs> this resistance, the LGBT rights movement in America was born. During LGBT Pride Month, we commemorate the events of June 1969 and commit to achieving equal justice under the law for LGBT Americans. Okay, we have not seen this one before. <laughs> Ten days later, his Department of Justice files a brief defending the defense, or really the denial of marriage act, and uses some of the most crass, I mean it's illegal leads, but crass language to equate gay marriage with incest, with, and, and ultimately defends it on the basis that, you know, we have to uphold this because it's tradition. Well, of course, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, that was also tradition. Um, so, it, it, but the fact that he went, that his Justice Department, his Justice Department went out of its way to, 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 to weigh in on the side of the bigots, really um, uh, tells you something about this just 10 days after the statement calling us um, LGBT Pride Month and commemorating a riot in doing so. We have to understand, and then two days after that, he is forced once again to shift himself and say, I'm against DOMA, we've got to do something about it. It, even though I'm not granting full rights and benefits um, to the, uh, the, the gay partners, the uh, LGBT partners of federal employees. He was being pressured all the while. He got millions of phone calls. You think about the kind of pressure that was put. I, I wrote about it briefly in, in socialistworker.org, and they said that they, we've gotten more hits on that one little story than we've ever gotten before around the solidarity that working people had with, you know, with transgender people, one of the most reviled uh, people in this country who have no uh, protected rights by any law virtually across the country, and yet these two idiots in Sacramento on drive time radio call for the bashing of young children who are transgender, and tens of thousands of people across the country call in, weigh in, such that uh, multi-billion dollar corporations pull their funding from the show, they go off the air for a week, and when they come on, the first ever drive-time two-and-a-half-hour radio show with transgender people talking about uh, what happens is what takes place. A struggle, even a minor one. We're not talking about millions of people having taken to the streets, but people having gone into motion actually made a difference. And this is what is driving right now one of the more dynamic struggles that I think can have, uh, have, have effects on many, many other uh, struggles around us. I wanted to sort of uh, you know, end on this because I, I think they're one of the things we have to combat right now in this era, because so many people feel hopeful, and at the same time they feel kind of like, when, when are we getting ours? When is this going to happen? And we have to challenge a sense of inevitability that people have in their heads. There's nothing inevitable about progress in this country. There never has been, and there never will. You know, Mumia called into, Mumia Abu-Jamal called into this conference the other day, and it reminded us of something that Mark said. He quoted Marx saying that history does nothing. It fights no battles. It is men and women who do everything, who struggle and who fight. And he was absolutely right to say that. We are living through a period. We are living through a period.
shape that has elements of the 30s and elements of the 60s, and yet with a social consciousness that is far in advance of those periods when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to LGBT, when it comes to race. I mean, my God, some of the biggest struggles in labor happened in this country when Jim Crow segregation was a fact uh, in the South and de facto in the North. There were women's auxiliaries in those years. There will be no women's auxiliaries now. We are 52% of the working class who will be on the front lines. who were too young to have lived through the heady days of the late 60s and felt in some ways throughout our lives that perhaps we had missed out on the revolution. I do believe that heady days are to come. Before I call on our next speaker, I was gently reminded by a dear comrade that I will second what Ahmed called for earlier tonight. Sirst desperately needs your money and your contribution. Comrades are going to be walking through the room with some buckets. Please contribute what you can. It'd be greatly appreciated. Now our next speaker, as she's rushing to get to the mic, <laughs> is a frequent contributor to Socialist Worker. She's also the author of two titles released by Haymarket Books, Women in Socialism and Subterranean Fire. Please welcome Sarah I would ask that, that while you're making your contributions um, to Haymarket, that you keep in mind that um, you don't want to uh, take away from my presence, and please uh, avoid co putting coins in the bucket. Um, stick with uh, bills and checks uh, written for large amounts, please. Thank you. Now, as the theme here, um, which I'm going to touch on a different angle of, is of course that we are now the kind of historic moment that we have arrived at um, at this point only comes along very, very rarely. Um, when really the gross inequality and with the emphasis on gross of the capitalist system is on full display for everyone to see. To be sure, much of the capitalist class doesn't seem to realize uh, how much hostility is currently directed at them. It is unclear, for example, whether John McCain now realizes that when he um, was unveiled in February, Dick Van Dongen, gotta love that name, <laughs> president of the National Association of Wholesale Distributors, nevertheless told the Wall Street Journal, quote, this budget is a forced march towards socialism, in my opinion, without trying to be dramatic about it, he said dramatically. <laughs> and Dick Cheney, God bless him, still, still doesn't seem to be aware that even though his own popularity rating was what, down to 11, 12% by the time he left uh, office. Uh, every time he accuses the Obama administration of aiding and abetting terrorists, it is merely another reminder uh, to all of us exactly why we are so overjoyed that Dick Cheney no longer holds a public office in this country. 
everybody by now acknowledges that this is not only the worst economic crisis, uh, but also the worst ideo ideological crisis, as the other speakers have said, since the 1930s, when the profit system has been so completely discredited in the eyes of so many millions of working class people. For this reason alone, it is no exaggeration to say that we face, at this point in time, the greatest prospects for rebuilding the U.S. left since, since the Great Depression on the basis of massive class consciousness and class anger. To state the obvious, it is to our advantage that so many people under the age of 30 believe that socialism is a better system than capitalism. And I also want to mention that, although it is certainly distressing, as Joel pointed out, to see how the far right has been making gains in the recent European um, elections, if that pathetic trio of Nazis that showed up outside of our conference, if that is any indication, and I, you know, they did try to set up a picket, but you have to put the word picket in quotation marks. Because when one of them had to run back to the car to get something, there were more flags than there were Nazis to hold them. <laughs> so there could be little doubt that the social conditions at this point in time are well tilted in our uh, favor. Now to say that the far right is marginalized today, just to be absolutely clear, is, is not to say that this is a recipe for us to be complacent at all, but rather to emphasize that there is no excuse for the left, not, and I'm not just talking about the revolutionary socialist left, I'm talking about the broad left, because we need the broad left to grow, and there's no excuse at this point in time for the left not to grow significantly in this new era, just as the left grew in the 1930s. Now there are, of course, lessons from the Great Depression that are tremendously useful for us as we build a new left today. Today we face a situation in which six months into the Obama administration, as we know, the feds are still throwing hundreds of billions of dollars at the same Wall Street banks that caused the housing crisis while Obama's accomplishments. Now for this reason, some of the lessons of the 1930s that are most useful for us are not simply that the Great Depression was the single greatest era of class struggle in the history of uh, the United States, or that it was a, that, that that struggle produced um, the most significant gains and reforms that have ever been won. But also, we need to be really clear on what it took to get to that point. And as Sherry said, it didn't happen automatically. What I want to show you is that there are some, there are some obvious parallels between um, what, we, what we face today and what existed in the Great Depression. Because actually there is an often very false imp uh, uh, impression, as Sherry noted, is that you know the stock market crash happens in 1929 and by 1930 the working class is on the offensive. As if massive class struggle is an immediate product of economic crisis. And that is simply not historically the case. In reality, it took some years for the class struggle to advance, and real weekly earnings in 1930 fell by 20% across all industries in the United States. There were, of course, some important class struggles, like the struggles of the unemployed, 
like the neighborhood fights uh, against evictions, but the truth is that most of those struggles took place on a rather small scale. They did not involve struggle at the workplace, that is at the point of production, and maybe most importantly, this is something that we might find uh, familiar to today, they were episodic. They were temporary. They were not of a long-term nature, and they had a constantly kind of revolving participation of activists. It wasn't until several years later, in 1933, that the level of strikes began to rise significantly. And it's very important to understand, I think, that the dynamic, that the conditions of mass unemployment do not immediately lead to, to mass resistance. On the contrary, they often lead to uh, helplessness, a sense of helplessness in the first instance, not just among the unemployed, but even for those workers who still feel lucky enough to have a job. Because those workers are afraid that if they kick up too much dust that, and they rock the boat, that they will get fired and they will immediately be replaced by someone from the ranks of the, the growing ranks of the unemployed who is desperate for a job. It isn't desperation alone that drives workers to struggle. Um, there has to actually be a sense of confidence um, that it is possible to win. And that sense of confidence do often does not occur until at least some sections of the economy begin to pick up and start hiring again. And even after the tide began to turn in 1934 with the three strike victories in Toledo, uh, Minneapolis, and San Francisco, it wasn't as if from that point on that labor was on the offensive. Again, in reality, the three victories that took place in 1934 were immediately followed by the defeat of the textile workers' strike up and down the East Coast, which was, was one of the bloodiest assaults ever suffered by the U.S. working class. What would today be the unionization of the, you know, the anti-union Walmart Corporation? It was only at that point that you could safely say that the labor movement was taking the offensive in the class struggle. And that was some seven or eight years into the Great Depression. It's very important to understand that dynamic um, of the struggle. And there is a clear parallel between Obama's first 100 days in office and the initial character of Roosevelt's um, New Deal in the early 1930s. As with Obama, the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932 brought hope to the millions of working class families that desperately needed relief, that help was on the way. But Roosevelt did not immediately bring the kind of change that would put food on the table for workers or keep them in their homes. On the contrary, Roosevelt conducted a deliberate balancing act. That's, that's what you have to do if you're um, charged with running the capitalist system. That's the way it has to be. On the contrary, uh, Roosevelt, um, his rhetoric was certainly very generous to workers, but his budget was not. Only big business got significant relief in the early 1930s. It was only after the class struggle began to rise and lab the labor movement began to score those victories that I mentioned in 1934. And it should be emphasized that each and every one of those victories was led, those strike victories were led by radicals, socialists, communists, all sorts of radicals. Um, it was only then that Roosevelt, upon running for re-election in 1935, began to consider it necessary 
to grant the first major reforms of his administration. In that year, Roosevelt granted Social Security, um, the first acknowledgement ever in the history of the United States. The government actually um, has a responsibility to prevent mass starvation. And he also signed the Wagner Act, finally making it illegal for employers to refuse to recognize unions uh, chosen by their employees to represent them. In other words, there was and is a direct correlation between the scale of the struggle from below and the scale of the reforms that come above. And certainly Obama himself has said, repeatedly went on the campaign trail, he said, and you're going to have to pressure me. So pressure him, we have to, in the years um, ahead. We also have to keep in mind that history never repeats itself exactly. Just as today's economic crisis is not a repeat, you know, it can't be an exact repeat of the Great Depression, we should also not expect his, uh, uh, its uh, history to um, repeat itself identically when it comes to rebuilding either the labor movement or the left. There is no doubt that we lack certain advantages that uh, workers had in the 1930s. Probably most importantly, the fact that at the size of the left at the start of the Great Depression was much, much larger than what exists in the US today. In addition, large sections of workers at the start of the 1930s had either themselves or their parents or their grandparents, they had trained them uh, in the traditions of the class struggle and even the left-wing traditions of the IWW, you know, the Wobblies, the longest period of sustained retreat in US history. The vast majority of young workers today not only work in low-wage non-union jobs or multiple low-wage non-union jobs is actually more the case, but they have been cut off from the radical traditions that built the U.S. labor movement in the first place. That radical tradition is now going to have to be learned through reading and discussion rather than the stories handed down from one generation to the next. We can't change that. But in other respects, we find ourselves far in advance politically from the era of the Great Depression. The struggles against oppression that took place in the 1960s, even though they weren't based in the working class, the struggles for civil rights and black power, for women's liberation, for gay liberation, left a lasting imprint on US society that cannot be taken away. It is not only the fact, as we've uh, repeatedly mentioned, and it should never be forgotten how important it is, that an African American was elected president by a majority in this country, which would have been impossible a decade or two ago, but it's also the fact that John McCain's campaign man manager recently came out in favor of same-sex marriage and is urging the Republican Party to do the same. That speaks volumes for the changes in mass consciousness in today's world. The vast majority of people in this country have broken with the hate-based and conservative politics that allowed the Republican Party to dominate for the last 30 years, and instead people are embracing tolerance and social change. And that is something that we cannot <laughs> underestimate how important that is. What we already see unfolding in front of us is that the struggle for gay marriage is a synthesis of the fight for civil rights 
and also it is very much a working class demand. The struggle for immigrants' rights is a struggle for civil rights, and it is also a working class movement. What we saw on May Day 2006 when millions, literally millions of immigrant workers uh, came out for a day to march in a day without an immigrant is just a glimpse of what is possible in the coming years. In building a working class movement that stands for strong unions and also for social justice. The rise. The rise of industrial unionism in the 1930s was a qualitative advance from the limits of craft unionism. But it did not, let's face it, it did not challenge Jim Crow segregation in the South. It did not challenge lynching, which was still the order of the day in the Deep South. And it did not even succeed at challenging the fact that the National Industrial Recovery Act allowed Southern employers to pay black workers lower wages than white workers. In the end, industrial unionism failed when it came to organizing the South because it failed to make the fight for unionization also a fight against white supremacy. And for that reason alone, the South has remained a non-needs of today's labor movement. We have to move forward towards a union movement that fights for social justice, that makes the fight against oppression central to the class struggle. And only that is what is going to make a reality out of the labor slogan, finally, an injury to one is an injury to all. seeing glimpses that give us an idea already of on what basis this is going to be possible. For example, when the Massachusetts AFL-CIO backed same-sex marriage in, in helping Massachusetts to become the first state to legalize same-sex marriage a few years back. Um, and even the Republic windows and doors, the fact that some of the activists who, you know, we just watched a magnificent film, by the way, by uh, Comrade Andrew Friend. <laughs> magnificent. <laughs> about Republic Windows and Doors. But something you ought to know about that struggle is that gay, gay marriage activists came down and supported that strike. And Republican windows, Republic Windows and Doors workers returned that solidarity by showing up recently, uh, a few months back, at a, a same-sex marriage um, forum and standing up and expressing support on behalf of Windows and Doors. <laughs> U.S. labor against war represented an important step towards putting the strength of organized labor behind opposition to the Iraq war. If we begin to view the class struggle in this respect, then surely we will be able to fully appreciate why, even though the struggle for same-sex marriage does not involve workplace struggle or a strike, winning it will mark the first victory for our class in the battles that lie ahead of us. And while it is true that the scale of the U.S. manufacturing base has shrunk significantly over the last few decades, that doesn't mean that new technologies have brought about a post-industrial society. 
We can't simply aim to replicate bygone eras, but we have to learn to embrace the possibilities for a new era. For example, just try to imagine a future movement when a major uh, Fortune 500 company, pick any Fortune, Fortune 500 company uh, for your fantasy, when they find their internet completely shut down, this time not by a computer virus, but by a strike of its computer technicians. on the picket line by a walkout of women clerical workers who then convince the UPS delivery drivers to go out on a sympathy strike, all of them ready to fight to the finish to end the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, yet to be determined, and a new left that has yet to be built. Thank you very much. socialism and making this event such a wonderful success. Before I hand it over, well, I'm not handing it over to anybody, actually. Before I call this meeting adjourned, you want to sing right now, Paul? Come on, Paul! Well, we've got a special guest. confused tonight with tomorrow. See, this, we've never done this before. We've never done this before, so we can't do it. Uh, uh, let's do the international. I don't have it. Shall 
The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.